Welcome to Next Gen Now with Rudina Cesare. Your inside track to technology, innovation, and the startup world. Rudina Cesare, managing partner and co-founder of Glasswing Ventures, bridges listeners with the brain trust of the business world, speaking with early adopters and industry-leading innovators. Each week, she gives you a backstage pass to the people designing, building, and marketing the companies, products, and services of the future. Now, WebmasterRadio.fm presents Next Gen Now with your host, Rudina Ciceri. Thank you for joining us. I'm Rudina Ciceri, founder and managing partner of Glasswing Ventures, and I invest in early-stage technology startups. You can follow me on Twitter at Rudina11. And for those of you who don't know, that is R-U-D-I-N-A and the numbers 1 and 1. I welcome you, our listeners, to this edition of Next Gen Now. Today on the program, we will talk about the future, that is, the role that technology plays in shaping our day-to-day lives today and in the future. I'm particularly excited to be exploring this topic with Amy Webb, a renowned futurist, author, and founder of Web Media, a digital strategy consulting. Through her work at Web Media, Amy and her team research topics on near-future trends in the digital media and technology sectors, and they answer questions like, what is the future of X for a global client base? Amy is also a lecturer on emerging technologies at Columbia University, a visiting Neiman Fellow at Harvard University, and a published author. Her third book, How Did We Miss It?, will be published later this year. With that, I would like to welcome Amy for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm fascinated by the role technology plays in our day-to-day lives, both personally and professionally, as a venture capitalist, enabling entrepreneurs through capital to transform their ideas about the future into reality. But first, let's actually ask a basic question, but an important question. What is a futurist? I described you as such, but can you define for us what exactly is a futurist and what you do? I'm really happy you asked that question because there are a lot of people calling themselves futurists who are certainly interested in the future and they be they might be writing about the future as journalists or investing in technologies or simply really interested in science fiction but future <laughs> but uh, futurism has a sort of long history that begins in the late 1800s and emerged into an academic discipline in the 40s. So the RAND Institute, the Institute of the Future, these were organizations that were founded for the purpose of developing methodologies around planning for and understanding how to think about the future. So from the 40s onward, up until about the 70s, you could find professors of future studies in departments around various universities In the United States, there was a government agency that was responsible for scenario planning and thinking through the future that actually was not DARPA or uh, its sister agency, IARPA. So, you know, unfortunately, you know, and, and interestingly, as technology has become so prevalent in our everyday lives, from my point of view, it's more important than ever to plan for and study the implications of this technology and how we think about it and our relationship with it and our business relationship with it. And yet... There are no more this sort of academic, the rigorous academic study of of the future, which is not at all about making predictions or looking into a crystal ball, but rather um, making observations using data, modeling that data, building out scenarios, 
theorizing and then testing to you know to whatever extent possible the um, the likelihood of those scenarios. You know that just doesn't exist anymore in a lot of places, and so I would just caution the folks listening to you when they hear somebody describe themselves as a futurist. You know, it's possible that that person is interested in technology, but it's highly unlikely that they have done the rigorous analysis and research to sort of think through those broader implications and what to do about it all in the present. So, for example, you know, I would say that Elon Musk is a visionary. You know, he's a visionary. He is transforming automation and what we know about cars and space. But he is not somebody who studies the future, yeah. um, you know, in, in an academic way in order to make a, some, you know, in order to make informed decisions about what's coming next. So just, it's just important so to what, make that distinction. So what about Ray Kurzweil? He identifies himself as a futurist. Would you identify him as such as well, just, you know, to, for distinctions purposes? Or I would say visionary. I would say yes. He's, he's um, certainly modeling out and theorizing, you know, methods to understand what's coming next. Right. A lot of a lot of people who do fall into this category have specializations. So Ray is looking primarily at life sciences and trying to understand the frontiers of human longevity. Um, right. My my focus is around the intersections of technology, culture, and society. So I'm interested in future of media, future of work, future of of war. <laughs> you know, um, those those kinds of things. And Amy, I'm curious, why do you think that we don't have, you know, future, the Department of Futurism at such and such university? Why do you think the field hasn't taken off in a more typical academic setting? You know, you're in an area of business where your colleagues and you are probably more risk averse than the average business person. And, you know, the, the challenge is that you probably feel comfortable with a certain amount of failure. Most right. people less don't. less less risk averse than the average business person. I would. Sorry, sorry. Yes, yes. that's right. Yes. Uh, yes. Sorry. Yes. yes. So you are more. You are less risk averse. Sorry than the than the average person. And here's here's how that's analogous. You know, I would never say that I think something is 100% going to happen or is zero percent going to happen because there's a sort of range of of probabilities. The challenge is that when you've you know I think in the 70s and 80s, especially as futurism made this sort of weird turn into marketing. You know, the, when people got their, they would call them predictions. And when they got the predictions wrong, it lessened everybody's credibility. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's part of it. I think the other part of it is funding. You know, that, like I said, Newt Gingrich in the 90s defunded the department that was responsible for thinking through the implications of, of you know, planning and sort of really modeling out the future, you know, and, and then we went into a tech boom when everybody was throwing money at right. dot coms. And you don't want somebody like me in the middle of all that saying, well, now, wait a minute, let's think through whether or not we're creating a bubble. Well, <laughs> and, and, and if you were, I assure you, no one was interested in listening, whether you were sure. right or wrong, <laughs> purely because of the herd mentality. So, no, but I think that makes sense. So let's dive in. You have recently published a report around the 2016 trends. Uh, so let's bring everyone into your world of um, futurism and particularly this very, very interesting report. Tell us a little bit about it and then let's touch on some of the topics that you go in depth in the report. Every year for the past eight or nine years, my company, Web Media Group, has produced an, a uh, report at the end of the year that is really a look ahead. 
And each year we explain what trends we're looking at and why. And we offer what we think the key insights are around that trend. We give some examples and then explain what we think is coming next, as well as what companies to watch. And every year that report has grown. This year, our report has 81 trends that are really important things to look at in the future. And in addition to that, the beginning of the report explains what a trend is and why it's important to pay attention to trends. And I think the thing to note here is that a trend is not necessarily something that's trendy. So <laughs> while Uber for X is a huge, buzzy catchphrase that everybody is talking about, it is not something that I would call a trend. Right. But the sharing economy would be a trend, correct? Sure. I would think that the sharing economy into which Uber fits uh, would be a trend. Correct. Okay. With that, I believe we'll stop right here, take a quick break, and then come back and talk about the actual trends that Amy is seeing for the future. Next Gen Now will return staying ahead of the technology curve after a word from our sponsors. Great websites today need expert web design and development and need to be e-commerce ready and mobile friendly. But building a marketable and profitable website can be an uphill climb. Ready to make your new website or replace your existing website? Think Orange as the new way to get in the black. Orange Hill Development works with Fortune 500 companies and offer the same top quality development service at a fraction of what other providers charge. Brands like Absolute, Carlsberg, and Nestle trust Orange Hill Development. Find out why you should trust your website with Orange Hill. Contact Orange Hill for a consultation today at orangehilldevelopment.com. Reinventing keyword research, simplifying campaign optimization, redefining competitive analysis. SpyFu brings you an entirely new way to find the most profitable keywords for your SEO and PPC campaigns. New tools, new data, and a brand new look. We've streamlined SpyFu so that you can optimize your search engine marketing more efficiently, more accurately, and more intuitively. Visit SpyFu.com, that's S-P-Y-F-U.com, and start downloading your competitors' keywords now. Try it free. Looking for a better way to get more traffic and interaction to your Facebook page? Imagine Facebook interactivity on your page like you've never seen. Introducing your new Facebook marketing fix, So Social, the new and revolutionary way to easily manage and automate your Facebook contests and sweepstakes. Create a fun, easy-to-win contest by writing a simple Facebook post. Watch your post go more viral and generate loads of interaction. Track your traffic and generate email lists with ease. So Social is mobile-friendly and complies with Facebook terms of service. Let So Social give your Facebook page some flash today. Zoom over to zosocial.com. We're back with more Next Gen Now, only on webmasterradio.fm. Here's Rudina Ciceri. Welcome back to Next Gen Now. I'm Rudina Ciceri, and I'm joined by Amy Webb, a renowned author and futurist. And we were just starting to talk about what the trends for 2016 are in terms of the impact that technology is having on our daily lives. So, Amy, if there are a couple of the most meaningful trends you'd like to highlight from this year's report, what would those be? 83 is a lot. Pick a couple, then let's go a little bit more in depth. Sure. So one of the trends that I'm quite interested in is cognitive computing. So I would define cognitive computing as a sort of fourth era computing. And this is where systems of computers use natural language processing and artificial intelligence in order not just to process data, but in fact to understand our intentions. And 
The best example of this that we've seen so far that everybody's probably familiar with is IBM's Watson platform. Watson, in the the late 90s, uh, made headlines because it beat a chess champion, and you probably saw it or heard about it on Jeopardy a few years back when it uh, the platform was a contestant and beat, beat the two human contestants that were participating in, in the event. To me, what's so fascinating about Watson and actually about IBM is that Watson is really about anticipation. It's about anticipating the next few seconds of our thought patterns based on our previous behavior and what we've been doing in a you know, sort of very, very recent uh, span of time. So you could think of cognitive computing as machine-assisted computing, and it it penetrates so many different fields. So from pharmaceuticals, you know, people doing research, to complex complex diagnoses in medicine, to modeling out customer service and behavior. You know, when it comes to your cable company, you know, losing its power, and what's the best way to alleviate the stress in the community. It's a very different approach and a different way to think about computing. And so on the face of it, cognitive computing is really interesting to me. But on top of that, if you look at who IBM has been acquiring lately, which they just acquired Ustream, which is a video streaming service. They acquired the Weather Channel. Right. You know, I think that that IBM is going to emerge as a formidable competitor in a lot of different a lot of different business segments in places where nobody would have thought of IBM as being a competitor to their, to their industry. So many, many thoughts in there. So let me, let me see if I, we can um, elaborate on some of them. It's interesting because when you speak of uh, cognitive computing, I look at it from my lens as a VC and I am not a futurist. Let's just establish that right here and right now. But I do look at it as to sort of what will become mass market five years from now, seven years from now that I will invest and support today with capital. And I look at it, I take cognitive computing as part of a bigger trend. You will probably correct me is the wrong term, but I think of it as part of a bigger trend, which is the role that artificial intelligence is going to play both on the enterprise and on the consumer side. And cognitive computing, at least to me, is only one aspect of that. Deep machine learning is another facet. And maybe you view them as separate trends, but to me, they're part of this bigger notion that processing power uh, on, you know, has become both very, very high and very cheap. So computers have far outpaced us in terms of the ability to process information long ago. Where they have fallen behind is their ability to do so intelligently with the prediction and ability to take in everything from you know cognitive and social cues as humans do. And that's where I think it's the, the next era that we're entering where cognitive computing is a piece. Is that a wrong framework? So I would say that cognitive computing is the thing into which artificial intelligence and machine learning and natural language generation, you know, all of those things fit in, into that as a paradigm. So, well, you know, and I would say that individually, there are certainly AI companies that are quite interesting and there are machine learning algorithms that are quite interesting. But when I look at the whole picture, which is what I, I see this as a different kind of computing in a, in a you know, and to some extent, because of what you mentioned, I mean, the processes are cheaper, semiconductors are cheaper than they ever have been before, and they're, they're quite a bit more powerful, you know, and so I think that that helps usher in this next wave of computing, which is less about transaction, right, I put data in and get something else out on the other side, 
and more about collaboration. So humans collaborating with machines versus just, you know, using them as a means to answer questions. And prediction, right? Because I think if you understand intent, you have an infinitely more improved ability to predict. Right. But again, I, I would say predict what the, the what the user's intentions are, not sort of predict and model what could happen in the future. Correct. Yes. Correct. And then understanding intentions has been a challenge that we in the tech community have had, especially investors in the digital um, in digital and marketing technologies have had a really hard time with because while we've seen incremental improvements, to your point, and I agree we're entering this new wave of disruption, um, fully understanding consumer intent is a phenomenon that we're just now starting to at least imagine truly possible. So the topic of attention is one that fascinates me, which is one of the trends you have um, identified in your report. We've had in the past a guest, um, the CEO of Social Flow, which is a um, next-gen, actually now a large enterprise platform, basically trying to serve content from all the large publications out there and brands at the right moment. And how he defined the right moment is when the, he had, or the platform, which has a lot of AI in it, had the audience's attention. So all he does is talk about attention score. You two must have had a prior conversation. What's your view on attention? How do we capture it using technologies? Part of the challenge is to understand what exactly we mean by attention. So, you know, if, if, if I am standing online at a Starbucks for two minutes and I, I am looking at my mobile phone, you could argue that you've got me as a captive audience for two minutes while I wait for my coffee. Or uh, I think more wisely, you could say that my attention is likely to be split between lots of different things. Uh, there's ambient noise, there's people around me, I'm thinking right. about, you know, all of these different things. So. I think the best thing for everybody to do is to acknowledge that we are continually splitting our attention between tasks and things and devices. But what we do know is that our attention, if we have mobile devices, is you know at least partially connected to the device that we're carrying at all times. The, I was looking at some data the other day and the average number of times that an American picks up her mobile device is some crazy. It's like a hundred times a day. It's a crazy number. We don't even realize that we're doing it. Um, and so what that tells us is that we have to approach the content that we are sending to that device in a very different way. So whether you were in content marketing or marketing or brand building or journalism or whatever area of the business space you were in for the past several years, the buzzword has been about responsive design. So designing the digital experience so that it makes sense for the device. And what I would argue is that the device is not ultimately going to go out and buy the shoes that you're marketing, right? The device is, is not going to go vote for whoever it is that's that your you know candidate is in the election. The device isn't going to do that. The person holding the device is going to do that. So I've seen all of these companies vying for attention and promising all of these amazing tools to capture everybody's attention. But what I have yet to see is a company that is building tools to be responsive to the person 
versus the device that they're holding. And I think I think that's an interesting topic because going back to what we were just speaking about a few minutes ago, but now if you understand the individual's intent or intentions and combine them with tools focused on the consumer, not the device. By the way, from my point of view, we've stopped focusing on the device at least two or three years ago. It's all about understanding the intent of the consumer and being able to serve content or advertising when they their intent and your content align. The reality of how well it manifests itself, though, it's, it's still a challenge in large part, as you said, because of um, historical technological barriers. What about the topic of the very hot topic of security? As we see this new wave and as we see these trends um, on which you're touching and you've published, about the fact of the matter is the vulnerability and, you know, incidents, a number of incidents of hacking is increasing. I actually recently saw some numbers that basically in 1990, right before the advent of the web, there were fewer than 10,000 um, hackings that occurred. And as of last year, there were, I'm sorry, as of 2014, there were 43 million reported instances of hacking, and that's estimated to be only 20% of what occurs. How do we deal with security and privacy in this era of connectivity and intelligence? Well, there are some interesting things that people are, interesting solutions that some folks are working on. So, you know, there's the, the blockchain, which is the underlying infrastructure that powers Bitcoin, which right. is a cryptocurrency. I was never that excited about Bitcoin, but for me, it was it was the blockchain that I thought was the most promising and the most interesting, and it does it in a secure way. So rather than you making an agreement with a credit card company or a bank that holds your funds or that's keeping track of a ledger, which ultimately is people, right? And then somebody, and then maybe a merchant, and then somebody on the other end, you've got all these different people into the mix. Instead, there's a you know, blockchain offers a very unique and interesting transaction opportunity without having any of, of the middlemen. And, right. and so I think that that a pretty interesting opportunity. But there are some other ways that we're starting to see some of those possibilities as well. But I think that the biggest things I think for security that most people aren't aware of is that the more technology that we use, the more we will start to realize that this new technology breaks in ways that we weren't anticipating. And so we're going to wind up with lots of glitches, you know, which are or the New York Stock Exchange. You know, the stock exchange went dark due to a technological glitch. You know, it didn't completely disrupt the markets, but it was enough of a disruption that it caused people to worry and that it, it caused problems. There are zero day exploits, which we'll start to see more and more of. And in fact, there's a, there's a marketplace for them, which is where a zero-day exploit is, it's a vulnerability that, that can be exploited that nobody has detected yet. And it can completely right. wipe out a company. Right. And there's entire marketplaces now for would-be hackers and you know who, who can hold entire companies hostage. What I find is that... Well, and then we call that, and we call that the dark web, where not only do they hold companies hostage, but there is transactions based on right. who has hacked what. And But yes, agreed. Yes. Well, what I, what I would say is that, you know, as with so many... So many things that involve privacy and security, we're always chasing the last bad thing that happened. And we are very rarely thinking far enough ahead in order to plan for and protect against something that might happen five years from now. And, and that's the challenge. You know, we're, we're scrambling to fix. I mean, if you think about the way that security at, at TSA works in our country, it addresses something that happened years ago. 
not something that could be happening well into the future. And, and that, that's a challenge because we need to have the best and brightest security experts acting as though they're black hackers, you know, right. which is to say they're so that they're in the same place and seeing the same vulnerabilities and then hopefully fixing them before they become a, a real concern. Yeah, but I, I, think, I think I would tend to agree with you that we've seen security be a very much a responsive type of space, although more and more as the innovative companies are doing away with signature-based security, which is the very basis of what you just said, not addressing a known problem but going after unknown problems or leveraging intelligence to predict what might be a hack. It will be interesting to see how the market shapes. With that, I think um, we need to take another break, but when we come back, I will continue my conversation with Amy Webb. Next Gen Now will return, staying ahead of the technology curve, after a word from our sponsors. Oh yeah, my day is done. Time for happy hour. You're already done for the day? Yeah, because I use certifiedknowledge.org. Their PPC tools literally save me hours every day. How do you keep on top of all of Google's new features? Easy. With Certified Knowledge, their interactive learning modules keep me up to date. And if there's something I don't know, I can watch their video lessons without having to hunt around the Google help files. Great. I'm ready to expand my knowledge. Hi, I'm Brad Geddes. I'm the only leader officially supported by Google to teach the advanced track of the AdWords Seminars for Success. I personally recommend CertifiedKnowledge.org as your one-stop shop for all your PPC needs. Learn. Optimize. Connect. Be smart. Go to CertifiedKnowledge.org now. Whether you are an online business or domain name investor, you need access to the best names. With over 270 million domains already registered, finding the right names at the best price requires a great wingman. Namejet.com puts you in the pilot seat by giving you fast and unparalleled access to some of the best premium and expired domain names on earth. As the number one domain name auction platform, Namejet.com is the best place to find domains for your business or investment. So light the afterburners to the domain name aftermarket and fly over to Namejet.com at mock speed to get great domains today. Namejet.com. Johnson, what's this mantis I keep hearing about? Do we need to call an exterminator? No, sir. Moby Mantis is our new SMS marketing tool. SM what? SMS. Text messaging. Moby Mantis lets us communicate directly with our customers in real time. We can send promos, coupons. It even lets our customers market for us by sharing offers with their friends online. It's been great for business. Hmm. Sounds expensive. Actually, I sign us up for an extended free trial. It hasn't cost us a dime. Good work, Johnson. I guess the only thing we'll be exterminating is the competition. To get your free extended trial of Moby Mantis, text RADIO to 21691. That's RADIO to 21691 for Moby Mantis. We're back with more Next Gen Now, only on webmasterradio.fm. Here's Rudina Ciceri. Welcome back to Next Gen Now. I'm Rudina Ciceri, and I'm joined by Amy Webb, author and futurist about techn- on technology trends and the future. Amy, We've been touching on different areas of technology, uh, you know, from security to AI to cognitive computing. I'm curious, if, if you were to give us a snap view of what our everyday lives will look like five years from now and 20 years from now, a question that I get in every talk I give, I think people assume that VCs know what VCs and futurists are interchangeable, and I think we established that's not the case up front. 
what is your view as a futurist? What will my everyday life as a consumer look like five years from now and 20 years from now? I think I'll answer that question uh, within the context of cars, because I think it's easier to think okay. about the future when we have a tangible asset uh, to wrap our heads around. So, um, you know, I would say within the next five years, things will look pretty much the same. And that, that's sort of the uh, the interesting thing, especially five years from now, it'll be the year 2021, which to me sounds like some crazy sci-fi space movie. I mean, that sounds like it is the future, you know. But but I would say that, you know, five years from now, our cars will be more, you know, the new cars will be more sophisticated. They'll have some cameras. They'll have it, have adaptive cruise control, which some cars already do, which means that they'll be able to sort of stop and go and, and move along with traffic. These are not the kinds of things that make giant headlines or that, you know, make Luddites run for the hills. But that to me is the fascinating thing because all of the groundbreaking, amazing technologies that we think of, they, they tend not to happen overnight. They tend to ramp up slowly. And, and within the next five years, we'll start to see a lot of that ramp up slowly. We just won't recognize that it's happening. But 20 years into the future, so if we're talking you know, 20 or 30 years, if we're talking about the year 2047, I think that we won't own cars anymore. I don't think that there will be the same kind of public transportation as we see today. Uh, I would say that it's a plausible scenario for the future that Uber would become the underlying infrastructure that powers all of our logistics in the United States, possibly the entire world, and that it delivers not just people, but it delivers pets and packages and, you know, maybe it powers farm equipment and maybe there's a potato farm and there's an Uber tractor and an Uber combine and lots of different, you know, Uber devices that are all uh, operated remotely or pre-programmed. And there's and why, a single... And sorry to interrupt. And why are you betting that that's Uber? Why aren't you betting that that's Amazon's drone, Google drone, or some company that is in its infancy being created? Well, because I think Google and Uber are partnering with each other. I, I don't think that Google wants to become the transportation and logistics layer. Uber, or I'm sorry, Google, I think, wants to be the information layer. I think that they, you know, if, if we are in cars that are fully automated or that are mostly automated, that opens up our time. Google wants our time, right? Because that's that, that falls into their longer term business strategy. So, you know, Amazon, maybe Uber and Amazon are the two competitors, uh, but I see Google and Uber as collaborators, not competitors in that space. But but the point is that I, I think that, um, you know, and that's that's a future that it would be hard. It's hard to think about that right now. But I don't think that most people will own cars. I think they'll own subscriptions to trans, you know, transport services. I don't think we'll have flying cars because of, you know, I explained that in the first two chapters of the uh, of the book that I've got coming up next. Um, and that's okay. Just because we don't have a flying car doesn't mean we failed at innovation. It means that we painted the wrong scenario. And oftentimes we like to latch onto scenarios that are exciting and futuristic sounding. Uh, and a flying Jetsons car is certainly more exciting than a car that basically operates itself while on a highway. That's not quite as exciting. Amy, is innovation, in your view, linear or do we jump curves? Well, I think it really depends on the situation. You know, what we do know is that technology accelerates the advancement of technology, which is to say that uh, the smarter and the better and the faster that machines come, the quicker that we reach inflection points and then move on to the next set of things. 
So, and it also depends on how you define innovation. You know, there are plenty of VCs who, you know, who complain and argue that we're not innovating anymore and that we're not building anything interesting. I would argue that we certainly are innovating and we are building interesting things. They're just not visible. You know, the fact that, you know, Google now to me is incredibly compelling because I believe that it will become the thing that we all rely on. I, to me, this is like looking at the seeds of Jarvis from Iron Man, <laughs> right? From the comic yeah. You know, yeah. it's a smart virtual personal assistant that we are being acclimated to, you know, over time. So I would argue that, you know, again, a lot of these people point to flying cars or living on Mars or these sort of big antiquated sci-fi stories from the 60s. Personally, you know, that's all fine, but I don't want a sci-fi story from the 60s. I want, I want to live in a world in which this very sophisticated technology is solving my everyday tasks and making my life easier so that I can reserve the bulk of my brain power for much more difficult, heady projects. Yeah, and I, I would tend to agree with you. I don't think innovation, even transformative innovation, should mean shock and awe. I think it happens gradually, and all of a sudden it's become pervasive. And we look back and say, oh my goodness, two or three or five years ago, we couldn't have imagined it possible. I think we're almost out of time, but I do want to ask you one final question about your upcoming book. For the audience and all our listeners, can you tease out just a little bit as to what the book will focus on? Sure. So the publication date is December 6th. So you'll be able are to find track, it. Are you on track with your writing? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I, this, is my, this is my third time around, around the track. So it's a book about the methodology that I use to forecast trends. And so it, it takes readers through every step of the process from identifying what's happening at the fringe to testing out theories about trends before you actually create actions around them. And as I detail the methodology... I explain in great detail using a lot of case studies for familiar business case studies that people will be familiar with uh, from today. So it's a business book that is sort of snuggled inside of a big ideas book, and it should be a pretty fun read, but also a really useful book for anybody in business. Sounds very exciting. Well, I'd like to thank you, Amy, for joining us today and for this very, very interesting conversation. And again, I encourage all our listeners to find Amy's 2016 Trends Report, Amy's and her companies, I should say, and her team's um, 2016 Trend Report. With that, I'd also like to thank my producer, Brasco, for another great show. And of course, I thank you, our listeners, for partaking in this edition of Next Gen Now. New episodes of Next Gen Now air Mondays at 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. If there is a topic you'd like me to cover, please tweet me at Rudina11. That's R-U-D-I-N-A and the numbers 1 and 1. I'm Rudina Ceseri, and I look forward to speaking with you next time right here on Next Gen Now. This has been a presentation of WebmasterRadio.fm, the world's largest business-to-business radio and podcast network. We welcome you to sample past episodes of this program, as well as our complete library of programs, on demand or on the air via our 24-7 live audio stream at www.WebmasterRadio.fm. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited.